Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Saturdays with Jenny. With Jenny every Saturday from, from 9, 9 to 11 a.m. on Kaya FM 95.9. Well, I'm joined in the studio by none less than Mandy Wiener. And <laughs> so, Mandy Wiener and her book, The Whistleblowers, is absolutely everywhere. It is, let me just tell you right now, it is. Just a, a sneeze away no, don't from. Don't tell people because then they won't want to read it. <laughs> you know, but it's it's separated. It's separated into different chapters. But it is just under five hundred pages. There, I did it. No, but it's not nearly as long as Ken Follett's book, which is nearly eight hundred pages. What can I say about that? But this is that? you can read it in bite sized Well, that's what so, I'm saying. Yeah. You do, it, it's in different chapters. So, so Mandy, before we do anything, let me break the news to you because I phoned up um, Exclusive Books uh, last night. I said, "Where is this book on the bestseller list?" They said it's number four. Oh. So, it's already on number four. It's been out for what two weeks? I, I think it's a bit, it's actually on overall at, at number one. Oh, this is week. it? Yes. Oh well, okay. So the branch I phoned. <laughs> <laughs> so it's number one, and I'm absolutely amazed at the South African books that are coming one after the other, and each of them is unputdownable. They read like thrillers, and they read like movies, and you must have been aware of that. As you were writing this, yeah, there's an amazing crop of of books that are out at the moment. Um, I think a lot of people spend lockdown writing, um, so uh, you know, and, and a lot of investigative journalism has been happening, and everyone's bringing them out at the same time now, which um, you know, which is obviously challenging for the market, but it's fantastic because people are reading and and people are buying books, and uh, it's so important to see these kind of books, investigative journalism. You know, we've seen um, some fantastic fantastic books out there uh, and, and it's just necessary considering the climate in the country well it, it 100% is but I mean I just I mean I'm just thinking of of you in in a very short period of time I'm trying to work out the dates um, let me just work it out the date that when did you write your first bestseller your best 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 killing cable in it came out in march 2011 okay so and i only know that because i got married a week before well i know that and then by the time the 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 book really hit the stands and everything you were pregnant and then and i have never been to a book launch on the top of a building in joburg <laughs> where there were criminals and people were standing in a queue to get the criminal's signatures. Uh, the guy who actually pulled the trigger twice um, on Brett Kebble said that it was an assisted suicide. I'd never heard the term assisted suicide ever in my life. The other two guys there, I mean, they were straightforward criminals and probably still are, for all I know, if they're still alive. Uh, they're still alive. They um, are, are pretty much reformed, largely. Um, so it was just a, it was an interesting time because um, when I wrote Killing Kibble, there, there weren't a lot of other uh, South African non-fiction books written by journalists of, of that kind of, of style. Um, and it just resonated with people. It, 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 it just uh, something triggered, triggered, excuse the pun. Um, but I think that a lot of people knew the people in the book. In some kind of way or other, they could identify with them. Uh, they had grown up around that same era, um, or they had just been fascinated by this insane story that was stranger than fiction. Um, and, and I think that's what 
what compelled people to buy it at the time? Well, on a bridge, there was Brett Kibble slumped over the steering wheel, finally, um, you know, riddled with bullets. After the gun had failed to go off and the, the gun, car the night, had overheated the night before, and he had driven and, and, to his death. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, um, and he was a, a larger-than-life figure. And I think also because you used tweets. And it was the first time people had seen tweets, you know, in, inside mm. a story as well. But this is totally different. Um, the whistleblowers. So here you are, two babies later, homeschooling later, um, the most extraordinary husband later. I have. Well, I mean, he still is. He is uh, still, yes. He's probably <laughs> listening. But, uh, but all of that. And what prompted you? What was the, the, the thing that prompted you to go out on the road and write this uh, absolutely extraordinary book? Uh, so I, I decided that I didn't actually want to write any more books for a while because I'd done Ministry of Crime not too long ago and that was very intensive and it was a look at the underworld in, in Johannesburg and Cape Town and Radovan Kreutzer and the police and I thought, oh, let me try something that isn't quite so uh, dark and threatening. And I thought, uh, I want to write a book about a whistleblower and I met with a whistleblower and um, we almost wrote that book and it didn't happen. And then I thought, well, I was really intrigued by this issue of whistleblowers. So let me go and speak to several whistleblowers in the country because we all know the stories of state capture and the Gupta leaks and the arms deal and all of these other stories, e-tolls, whatever it may be. They are in the newspaper headlines, but we don't know the stories of the individuals behind them. Mm. We've seen people come to the Zondo Commission. We've heard them give evidence. We know about this idea of whistleblowers, but we didn't really fully appreciate the 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 human experience and what people go through, what they risk, what the reward is, uh, what the, the price is that many of them pay. And I thought, well, let me do this. And, and I started doing one and then another and another. And I ended up traveling around the country, meeting with people. And it was very intense. It was a very heavy conversation with many of them. And, and I just was drawn into this human narrative. And uh, I kept going and kept going. And it was lockdown. So it was a bit difficult, um, homeschooling and surviving, uh, staying sane, but it gave me something to focus on as well. So a lot of it was written in lockdown. One or two of the interviews were done once we went down the levels and I could travel with uh, Felix Tlangamangla, who is the photographer in, in the book. But many of the interviews were done at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, which fortunately, so I could write it during lockdown. Well, it is it is absolutely gripping. And what, what caught me right at the very beginning is this discussion about what is a whistleblower? Because there are degrees and then there are degrees. You know, for some people it means something else. Tell me what a whistleblower is in terms of the discussions you had in this book. So by technical definition, a whistleblower is somebody who is within an organization that reveals information about wrongdoing within that organization. So there is a, t a technical definition. But I open the book with uh, just a, an incredible quote from Musilo Motepo, who is the Trillion whistleblower, who is not featured in this book because she's writing her own book. But in it, she, she, is, she essentially says, I hate the term whistleblower because we are people, we are mothers, we are... Um, you know, you have to read, read the quotes actually because it's, because it's so powerful. And she just says she hates that label um, because of, of the connotation of it and, and what it means. And a lot of people will look at the cover of this book and say, well, Angelo Agritti isn't a whistleblower. Well, this person isn't a whistleblower. Why are they included? But 
according to the definition of a whistleblower, they are. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, there is a spectrum of whistleblowers. So on the one end, you've got people that are virtuous, who have uh, altruistic motives, who feel that they cannot allow wrong to continue and they speak up. Somewhere in the middle, you've got an accidental whistleblower, somebody who realizes that they are um, witness to something and if they remain silent, they will become complicit and they speak up. And then on the far end, you've got people who have a proximity to wrongdoing, who are complicit and they have some kind of Damascus moment and feel that they, they need to come forward. So even when they are involved in wrongdoing, they remain whistleblowers. Okay, so so the, the, the other thing that seems to be common with just about every whistleblower is that their lives are irrevocably changed and not for the better. Absolutely. Um, in some instances, it may be for the better. Uh, those are very rare. That's where people turn whistleblowing into a career. They, they leverage it to um, become social justice activists. But in the majority of cases, unfortunately, um, they, the results are devastating for a lot of people. Um, they lose their jobs. A lot of them face criminal charges. Uh, they are pushed to the fringes of society. They are treated as impimpies or pariahs or troublemakers. They can't get jobs. Um, many of them have got PTSD. Many of them have just really suffered with alcoholism or marriages breaking down. Uh, it really is problematic. There are obviously good stories uh, where money is, and a huge amount of money is returned to the fiscus, where power is held to account, where wrongdoing is exposed Exposed, but it does come at great, great personal expense. So I was thinking of this because of uh, of um, what's his name, Agrizi, and uh, I mean I was thinking he had us. Everybody was riveted by suddenly there was this guy that nobody had heard of, and he was revealing all. and And he had taken a video, and he had endless um, proof of the wrongdoing that had been going on at Basasa, and 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 there he was. And now suddenly he is, I mean, he, he, I think he did expect to go to jail for a period of time. Um, but in return for that, obviously, he, he came up with all the goodies and, uh, and whatever. And I think he's been treated abominably. Well, this is such a contentious issue. And I've spoken about it on Twitter and been hammered for it because at the heart of it, Angelo Agrizzi remains a whistleblower. A lot of people saw, obviously, what happened in the bail application and the fact that he had lied about taking money offshore and that he had not disclosed certain things and he had lied about his Italian passport and where it was. And they were like, mm, he's a liar. The NPA cannot trust him. The truth is, though, although he was complicit, he and I, I, I give him a really hard time in the book mm, about this. And, and I said to him up front that you're going to have some, some tough questions. And he agreed. And I, I said to him, like, you're clearly involved. In, in, in wrongdoing, you were complicit. And he said, yes. So I said, well, what was your motive for coming forward? And he acknowledges it's self-preservation. Straight up, he says, I, I acted out of self-preservation. But he has still cooperated with the Zondo Commission and with the NPA and brought information forward about Bosasa. And I, I find it very interesting that the NPA um, clearly has decided that he's not going to be a witness. Otherwise, they wouldn't have opposed bail. And the truth is, he's lied a lot and on the on the NPA's version, at least, and they wouldn't want him to be a a witness. But he remains a whistleblower. In fact, I got a, a message from another whistleblower in in the book, um, who actually raised concerns about the fact that uh, Agrizi had been treated in this way mm. because of the chilling effect it has on whistleblowers. Saying. Um, 
please pass this message on to Mr. Greetsy that he must be strong, that we understand what he's going through. Uh, tell him we know that he's not a saint, but we can also see that maybe a plan to victimize him for speaking out against political gangsters, um, that it is an attempt to silence him. So this is not a popular view. Um, a lot of people think that he shouldn't be given any credit, but according to the definition, he remains a whistleblower mm. for coming forward with information. And you don't, people are not saints. I mean, they, they become whistleblowers, as you said, for all, all sorts of reasons. And then uh, let, let's talk about somebody who did it because, quite simply, because he could see what was happening was wrong and it offended him. And he felt that he could manage by revealing and, and he did a lot of research and that is the very very first story that you tell in the book and the headline is hate me but don't hurt me and uh, and here we've got um mos paco's um son um corruption in the rustenburg municipality i read the story and i actually wanted to cry mm. It, it was, it's incredibly, incredibly moving, the story. Um, and this is a story that stayed with me. It was so powerful. So Moss Parkwe was a counsellor in Rustenburg. And uh, he was one of these fastidious, meticulous counsellors who um, made sure that every single detail in council meetings was attended to. And just the kind of bureaucrats that we need, actually. And he started to discover, along with Alfred Mortzi, who was also a, a counsellor in MMC in Rustenburg, that there was corruption happening in in the area, in, in the city of, of Rustenburg. And they put together a dossier. They started going to politicians, top politicians, leadership of the ANC, trying to bring this forward. Um, and eventually it culminated in a meeting with, um, I think it was Sitkelo Shitkeka, who was the Minister of Cooperative Governance at the time. And in this meeting, the people that he was accusing of corruption, which included the then mayor, Matthew Vormerans, and he, he said, you know, this is the evidence. And he said to Vormerans, hate me, but don't hurt me. And a day later, he was gunned down in his driveway. Mm. And he had just been hanging up uh, posters for the ANC. There was an image of Jacob Zuma on his vehicle. He was wearing a T-shirt with Jacob Zuma. And it just showed that there was this loyal ANC cadre who was trying to hold his comrades to account. And he ended up dead for it. Mm. And subsequent to that, just to give you the abridged version, what happened was years later, Matthew Vormerans and his bodyguard were prosecuted and tried and convicted for his murder mm. but on appeal a year later in the supreme court of in, in the high court in Mafi king that conviction was overturned and matthew vormerans has always denied any involvement and he in fact went on to become a member of parliament so there i mean no words are needed for that but there are a couple of others that that are movies they are they are straight forward movies the hard drive that sparked a new dawn have you ever in your life heard anything like this we were reading a book which collectively it's in a series of chapters as i'm sure you've gathered um but collectively it is it'll blow your mind and it will also in a in a strange way it'll entertain you because there are one or two chapters that are just what and you want you just want to know more and it's got to be a movie it has to be a movie but we are talking to mandy wiener and we're talking about her book a best-selling book number one in south africa and it is a uh, obviously a total bestseller and it's riveting just very very briefly um patricia delille uh, so so patricia i mean people love her people I don't know that people dislike her, but but sometimes she's 
difficult to like, I think. But but here's Patricia DeLille up in arms, and we forget that she was the first person to bring up the subject of the arms deal. Yes, it's interesting. Obviously, Patricia DeLille at the moment is um, caught in controversy, shall we say. But I look uh, primarily here, only here, exclusively at her role in exposing the arms deal and the backstory. So I think I think some people will probably remember that in 1999, she stood up in Parliament and she disclosed the arms deal. Um, and the, the, the Patricia DeLille, they called it the DeLille dossier. And this tells the story of the backstory of Becky Jacobs, who was just this intriguing, mysterious spy. And how it landed up that this dossier came to Patricia DeLille. And then what happened subsequently where they were having these clandestine meetings at the uh, Rhodes Memorial and at the Spur in Claremont and how there were all of these spooks following them around. Um, and then how she landed up testifying against Shabir Sheikh eventually. She's on the list to testify against Jacob Zuma. But again, we know the story of the arms deal. We know that this has been rumbling on for two decades now. But this is the backstory about how Patricia DeLille was the whistleblower. There were other whistleblowers, like Sue DeLeek, who I speak about in this book, is one of the most unknown, fascinating and um, one of the whistleblowers that made the biggest contribution because she was a PA for um, the French arms company's CEO, Elaine Tittard, and she is the person who had the encrypted facts this encrypted facts we heard about so much uh, during the Shabir Sheikh trial, which basically was confirmation of the payment and which will come up again in the Zuma trial. And it's the story about how Billy, did, uh, Billy Downer and Gerda uh, Ferreira, and they land up in this little <laughs> house uh, somewhere in a horsey suburb and it's raining and the cats are walking around the table all over the, the encrypted facts and they're trying to get it from, from this woman. It, it, it's, it really is a movie. No, it's a total movie. Sadly, she's she's no longer alive mm. because I think I think it would have been good for her to know that um, that it was going to be brought up in the trial. We don't have too much time left, and I know that uh, you are interviewing Andrew Harding. What a book! What a book! I it's mean, incredible. Um, these are not gentle people. We're doing an event at Bridge Books at 11 if anybody wants to come through. So um, I was going to mention, well, I still will mention it at the end of this conversation. And we need another hour. But let's talk about the one that is a movie. It is 100% a movie. And if Moonin Lee was still alive, you know, beyond Moonin, this is a movie. It's full, you know, we can Who do it. Who would she cast? Who would you cast for it? And she would have such fun. But this is the hard drive that sparked a new door. Now, just because this is a journalist story, so just very briefly encapsulate it because I will just get lost. But I want to tell you it's riveting. It's magnificent. So it's the story of Stan and John, who we still do not know who they are. Mm. And Stan and John came across this discarded uh, hard drive. And they could have just left it they could have dumped it they could have chosen to not do anything with it but stan had a look and he realized that there were emails and this this hard drive came from within the heart of the gupta empire and these were the emails that were disclosing all of these dodgy deals that were happening with thousands of them thousands of them and this is the story of how stan tried to get the hard drive he came down the road here to the mail and guardian and was closed he tried to meet with the damp who just didn't rock up for the meeting and eventually he landed up um with brian curran who is an internationally renowned human rights 
Bernard's lawyer and landed up then with Branko from the Daily Maverick and with the team from the Daily Maverick um, and about how this hard drive landed up with these journalists but then how it was almost scuppered and the whistleblowers were almost compromised because of Lady Macbeth who is disclosed in Anton Harbour's uh, book, So For The Record. He was very gentle about it on air, you know, but but uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and then how these whistleblowers were almost compromised and how they had to get out of the country and also what has happened to them and, and the implications sad. for them. It's very sad, considering we owe them an enormous debt as a country. They brought down a regime. They brought down a president, ultimately. Mm. Mm. Well, it is it is one of the chapters in the book that that you will not be able to put down, and I don't know why I keep thinking of Bazima Shaloa, but he is a, a voracious reader, and uh, I just keep thinking this is the chapter that maybe he's going to love above all the other ones. I don't know, but uh, the chapter is the hard drive that sparked a new dawn. I think you've done the most extraordinary book. Um, several times in the book, you have confessed that you are deeply distressed and deeply moved and deeply upset. How, how difficult was it for you at the end of this book to, to walk away from it? And there must be scars, surely. Very much so. It was harrowing. You had to sit with people and to carry the burden of, of their trauma, but also the responsibility of relaying their stories that haven't been told. Many of them have never spoken before. Many of them are too distressed and too disturbed to actually speak about it. So that was a, a very difficult thing to do. And also my biggest fear was that people would read the book and would be bereft. That they wouldn't want to come forward as whistleblowers. And I want the opposite to happen. I don't want people to be dissuaded. I want them to realize the value of blowing the whistle and the contribution that it makes, but then also to advocate for change. Because at the end of the book, I speak about how legislation needs to change. Mm. The way that society treats whistleblowers has to change. We have to create a climate where whistleblowers will come forward. Because if we don't, they won't. And if you constantly speak truth to power and power constantly prevails people will not come forward mm. and we need them we absolutely have to have whistleblowers if we are going to fight corruption so did you did you go for some trauma counseling i'm being quite serious no I, i'm a big advocate of trauma counseling mm. as a as a frontline journalist um i haven't actually for this book um because um, <laughs> 20 years later i think it's um I think I've, I've got the mechanisms to, to deal with it. Um, but it was a very difficult book to, to write. You know, and I think that, that there really is a lot, of, a lot of trauma, but there's also a lot of comfort in the book um, and a lot of appreciation for people and what they've done. I think there are some absolutely outstanding, riveting stories. And as you can see, I've dipped into the rest of the book, but um, my thoughts actually today are with Angelo Agrizi. Uh, he's, not, he's clearly not well, and now he's got to be kept alive. So but there's not a lot of sympathy for him. No, no, no. no I really, there isn't. Well, so. he's not very nice. He's not very nice. I mean, he, he was a very he's a, he was a very nice person in person. But look, he's admitted to being a racist. He's admitting admitted to bribing people, and it's it's a difficult balance. Well, I suppose it is. <laughs> Let me give you the details. It is the whistleblowers. It's by Mandy Weiner, published by uh, Macmillan, and it is. I think it's incredibly reasonable in terms of price. And a little bit later on today, if you want to get a, a, a sort of an interview made in heaven, Mandy Weiner will be chatting to Andrew Harding about his new book. And we were speaking to, speaking to him last week. These are not gentle people. That's a Bridge Books, and that is in Commissioner Street. So go along there. It's, it starts at eleven a.m. Mandy Weiner. 
Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Always so good to catch up with you, Jen. Saturdays with Jenny. With Jenny every Saturday from, from 9 to 11 a.m. On Kaya FM 95.9. Rewinding. Rewinding Kaya FM on FM Rewind. Visit kayafm.co.za.